Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day. And internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So, while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Today's podcast is sponsored by June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game which transports you into a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance set in the glamorous 1920s. You'll play as June Parker as she embarks on a quest to solve her sister's murder. But that's not all. You'll let your imagination run wild as you get to customize your own luxurious estate island with expensive gardens and beautiful buildings. So, can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This is Janelle from Chicago. Get exclusive podcasts and more at patreon.com slash partners in crime media, just like I do. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, a Tokyo cop in London hopes to find his brother before the Yakuza do. We'll talk about the Anglo-Japanese crime thriller Giri Haji. Then we'll talk about the re-release of the miniseries Waco through the eyes of those on both sides of the Branch Davidian standoff. That series is on Netflix. Joining me to get that done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist, and long-haired... <laughs> Honk. <laughs> Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. You know, I started combing my my hair forward. I know. And I looked like a, one of the Beatles, 1965. I know. You look, Ex- your, you look except like your dad. In the front. You look like your dad. Your hair's what? getting like lush and wavy on the top. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I forgot my hair gets curly when it gets longer because it hasn't been long since college. I know. Yeah. You're like a, like a middle school hockey player. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't smell like one. Yeah. <laughs> also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, certified cat lady, and our favorite small town walking tour guide, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Yeah, hello. That is me. I'm trying out for iFit, where they have people <laughs> that go and like take you on walking tours. So, oh. Um, not really. Well, but. Laura, you may have to like improve your vertical video uh, <laughs> stylings <laughs> if you want to try out for something. And finally, our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy and the host of the hit podcast, Strange Arrivals, Toby Ball. Good evening, Toby. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be talking with you, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> Toby Koresh. Toby. Over there wow <laughs> he's found happiness toby can you come out though what if i send him some milk toby <laughs> now kevin we have a little business we have to do before we start the review part of the part yes. of the podcast yes yes what will our listeners find at patreon.com slash partners in crime media if they join up right now what will they find there we're gonna find the latest episode of married with podcast yes and it gets deep uh the crime writers on after show in which we talk about in the dark New series. Yeah. With their episode that takes place at Parchment Prison. Yes. And I also want to just fill you guys in a little bit on the latest season of Undisclosed. 
mm-hmm. and why you should maybe give it a listen because it's freaking bananas. Oh, okay. Um, and then also, um, Kevin, we should just say this week's episode of Mary with Podcast features some of the most intense and unusual questions yeah. we have ever received. I really, really want our listeners to hear it. It's really something. Yeah. And one other thing, very special thing uh, this week. Toby is going to be recording the Deep Dive Book Club podcast as a uh, video crowdcast. Yes. And so our uh, Patreon listeners will still get the podcast, but for um, some of the uh, select members, they'll not only get to watch the video, they can partake in the discussion, come on the video, and uh, talk with Toby and his three stellar guests. Four. I'm going to be there. I'm totally Oh, well, you're not one of the guests, Rebecca. (laughs) You're just party crashing because you love the book, Catch and Kill. All right. Well, speaking of Patreon, Kevin, who are our Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Hillary Zelaznik and Reader Woker. Bless you. Yes, bless you. And bless everybody. Is that the famous us. musician, Rita Walker? <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, do you want to fill our listeners yeah. in and give a little update on that? Our front? other patron saint is Steve King from Bangor. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Uh, Jonathan Irving Jonathan from Irving. Vermont. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, hey. Patrons are regular folks, just like you and I. Except some of them. Some of them have written multiple New York Times bestsellers <laughs> and have an adaptation coming out on Netflix later this summer. Yes. You know, and uh, that would be Lee Bardugo. Yes. So <laughs> so, so Toby's, Toby's, Toby's offhanded question last week is, Lee Bardugo, the famous author, yeah. that's my daughter's favorite author, Lee Bardugo? Yes. Yeah, it is. She's been on our Patreon for like two years. Hello, Lee. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Maybe she'll join us for one of the Kevin After Drinks videos. Ooh, that would be fun. On Patreon, just like you could. At patreon.com. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Slash partners in crime media. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get the show started, shall we? Yes. Let's do it. <laughs> A murder in London sparks a gang war in Tokyo among rival Yakuza. Detective Kenzo Mori is told his brother, thought to be dead, may be living in London and central to the conflict. Yuto Mori, once a henchman for a Japanese mob boss, has now taken a similar role with a London mobster. My name is Yuto Mori. I was a Yakuza contract killer in Tokyo for the Fukuhara crime family. I know gangsters. I know how to protect them. If you hire me... Then the next time someone puts a knife on you, they'll be dead before they have a chance to ruin your shirt. Sent by both his department and the Yakuza, Kenzo goes to England to find Yuto before either law enforcement or the mob do. Along the way, he befriends a drug-addicted rent boy named Rodney who lives for drama. Fuck off. No, listen to me. You've got to tell him that if he wants you, he's got to start acting like a man and not behaving like a little bitch. Because do you know what a little bitch gets? No, neither do I. Because I don't associate with them and neither should you. Gonna get you in time. With his family in crisis back in Japan, Kenzo fights his feelings for Sarah, a local detective who discovers his secret mission. What are you going to do about Yuto? If we find Yuto, he'll be arrested. And if you try to obstruct that, you'll be arrested too. And the fact that you know I'm his brother now? I don't know. 
Gary Haji is from BBC Two and Netflix. The title translates as Duty Shame. It's a bilingual drama that combines a police procedural, family melodrama, mob thriller, forbidden romance, a coming-of-age tale, plus a little bit of fantasy and an ending unlike anything we have ever seen. Now, spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from Giri Haji, so if you want to remain spoiler-free, please go to the estimated time code in our show notes for our thumbs-up or thumbs-down review. So, Laura, we've got two countries represented here. We've watched lots of British procedurals, and I think we've even reviewed a few on this show. But here we have some elements, too, of Japanese culture. A lot of the show takes place in Japan, and, of course, we're introduced to the Yakuza in this show. What did you think of this dual country take on an organized crime slash police procedural? Um, Well, I think to me, that was probably the most interesting part of this series, because, you know, I've watched a lot of different British crime shows, but I haven't actually watched any Tokyo crime shows. And I certainly haven't watched any Tokyo slash London shows with organized crime and the mob in both countries. So I think that was really interesting to see sort of the dynamics between, you know, the authorities and the mob uh, in Tokyo, and then how that was different in London and also that sort of, you know, cross-cultural, like when, you know, you have somebody going then from the Tokyo mob infiltrating and becoming part of the London mob. I mean, that was also very interesting, but it was just um, different setting for crime than than we've had in the past. So I thought that was, it was nice. It was kind of refreshing to see something new. Kevin, you like the premise of the show, right? Oh yeah, very much. I mean, it's another one of these cross-cultural police dramas like Valhalla, like Bridge, Brun, Brun, we like to Screw around calling yes. it that. Our Danish uh, listeners love it when we do that. <laughs> and, but it, but it's like with, I mean, the, we're very familiar here with English crime shows. I can't say I've seen an awful lot of stuff from Japan in the police realm. And it doesn't feel like the typical English police drama at all. Like it doesn't have sort of the same sensibilities. It has a lot of the same places and the same setting, but it isn't that. And I and I don't. So I don't know how much of it like really appropriates from Japanese culture, other than sort of the characters and the setting. So I don't know if it's like a little bit of that style or not. I think it's kind of unique, sort of its its format. And a lot of the things and the sort of genre bending stuff that it's doing. But I thought uh, just the idea that you've got to he has Kenzo has to go to um, London to hopefully find his dead brother in order to stop a, a mob war. And if he does find the consequences of him actually finding him are almost as bad as him not. Hmm. So I like this setup right away. There's one thing I'm going to push back on. And in one way, it is very British. Uh, it is very typical of British dramas, procedurals, comedies, British media to have as sort of a central group, like a Scooby gang, like a cast of characters from different walks of life that kind of all coalesce together and do something together. Like, just think for a second about like, you know, sort of all the, the, you know, British films you've watched, like the big ones in pop culture. It's sort of like a weird gang of friends. Very often you don't see how they meet. You just see them all together. And it's like, well, how do these people know each other? But this doesn't feel like prime suspect. And it doesn't feel like. But that is one element of it that did feel very British to me. Toby, your first note, very first sentence, makes me want to punch you in the face as a fellow (laughs) reviewer, but all opinions here are respected. Apparently not. You think Giri Haji was silly, Toby Ball. Ah. Tell me why you think it's silly. 
Uh, why do you think it's not silly? <laughs> I loved it, Toby. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it's I fine. Think, I think I, it has a tremendous amount of heart, and I just loved it. I like it in the same way that I like like Roger Moore era James Bond films. <laughs> in that you just can't like you don't want to think about it too much. Like you could just watch like thing after thing after thing happening, <laughs> but like the plotting's ridiculous, right? Like you, you're not you're not watching it for the plot because the plot is just bizarre and like totally dependent upon people making weird decisions and coincidences and in a city the size of London, like happening upon like your uncle crawling at the verge of death through an alley. And, you know, it's kind of, it's silly. Is it sillier than say Killing Eve, which you like? Well, Killing Eve, I kind of feel like has a tongue in cheek aspect to it Hmm. that this absolutely a hundred percent, I don't believe does. You know, I enjoyed this. I enjoyed watching it because it moves super fast and there's stuff happening. You're like, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? But like, you can't really take it too seriously because the things that the people do are just like mind bogglingly nonsensical. Hmm. Like, why would a Japanese cop who's visiting uh, London decide to join a bunch of Albanian gangsters who are going to (laughs) go... On a like balls out, guns blazing raid yeah. on a British mob. I mean, it's just like, why would you do that? While your teenage daughter is like walking around, like the chances are you're going to be killed and your teenage daughter is going to be like stuck in London. It, it makes, It's okay. She has a new friend, Toby. It's totally cool. She's many it make, friends. It, it, makes, it makes zero sense. And my, my biggest issue with it is that I thought, I think it kind of took itself super seriously at times. But most of it is just the equivalent of like a beach read thriller. Yes. Where it's just like you keep fl- you keep flipping the pages because you're like, oh, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? It's fantastical. It is. And it's that way on purpose. Like, I don't think it takes itself seriously. Toby, there is this incredible barrier between Kenzo and Sarah that never goes acknowledged in the show. And this is like the moment I realized like this is not going to be a straight thing. Kenzo, who has this uh, very intense Japanese accent, comes to London, you know, speaks English pretty well, but then meets Sarah, who has this unbelievably strong Scottish accent <laughs> and uses a bunch of like local vernacular and seems to understand every single word she says. This is yours. It's a welcome pack. It's got a timetable and a map, some stickers for some reason. Thank you. You must be jet lagged. A cup of coffee and a McMuffin usually does the trick. Where there's always lying in the fetal position and weeping. Sarah. Sarah. <laughs> Kinzo. <laughs> I mean, that's another thing. And I, I didn't even think about that until <laughs> until Kevin was talking. But, you know, you've got this like setup of two cultures that seem to operate in exactly the same way. Hmm. Or if they don't operate in exactly the same way, they certainly understand each other's rules. Mm-hmm. And that includes the police and organized crime. Mm. Like everybody's like on the same page all the time, which is sort of the opposite of most of these things where sort of the cultural differences are like, you know, quote unquote, part of the fun. 
it seems like cultural differences hardly play any role at all in this. But see, that's what I loved about it. I mean, I have to be honest with you. I'm sorry just to make this a me and Toby thing. The two main things I loved about the show are A, they didn't do any of the stereotypical bullshit that you expected them to do. Taki being gay, not a big deal. You know, Ray and Kenzo's relationship falling apart seems to be something the family is going to be able to live with and move on from. Uh, the whole, like, all the stuff, you know, Rodney emerging as a character who's actually, like, a good guy fine like I I loved the characters so much I love that they dispense with the expected so quickly and so happily and I love that we were just able to see the Scooby gang coalesce quickly get into action and yeah some of the action was real stupid I don't know but that those are those are the things I loved about it Laurie I know that you also thought that the shootout with the Albanian mafia was too much right yeah I thought that was like to, for us to believe that we have this like straight laced detective who goes there and all of a sudden now he's like totally willing to go into a building and start shooting at people I'm like that's where I was like yeah this is kind of going off the rails but I felt like what you were talking about before where we're t- you know the different dynamics between people I feel like this almost tried to be like too many different things to too many different people we had like the family drama the crime drama the thriller the coming of age the love story and I just felt like the Thelma and Louise with the mom and grandmother back in <laughs> yeah. Oh my, that, which, that was my favorite part of the whole thing. Oh my, oh my God. That was like my favorite part when they're like out there and they put the poopy diaper on that guy's head. I was like, yes, take that, asshole. Yeah. So I felt like, but it was just, it just got more, it, it, you know, it, it reminded me of, uh, you know, as I've been here doing like middle school tutor help, uh, homeschool, uh, I wouldn't call it homeschool, whatever you want to call me in this day and age of pandemic, the butterfly effect. We were just doing some time travel stuff and the ripple effect sort of. And that's, I felt like this was supposed to be like a case study in that how like one action that happened um, when this guy faked his death and then like all this other stuff happens and it's like a train that's going to crash and you know it's going to crash but you can't stop it and Mm. I felt like it was a little bit heavy handed with that sort of theme Mm. I mean at one point one of the detectives even said something like actually I think it was Sarah who said like we've been here before doesn't it feel like we're going around and around to the same place that we've already like and I was just like oh okay so there was definitely kind of that sort of theme that they tried to weave in so I feel like there was a lot of different things happening in terms of genres it was ambitious right Kevin a lot of mixed genres we had even some animation yeah in this you know we have some sort of very um surprising scenes that kind of come out of nowhere like Sarah's dinner finding out that she's Jewish and sort of like bringing that aspect of things into it the mom and and wife becoming Thelma Mm -hmm. and Louise and, and you know what did you think of was this too ambitious for you no, I mean, it did have, you know, parts that worked better than others. I mean, the Taki's coming of age story was good, but was it as good as Rodney's haunting, where he keeps seeing the ghost of his boyfriend who died? Some things worked better than others, but on a, you know, on the whole, I thought it was really good. It's weird. I mean, I, I should be clear with our audience as I'm defending it vehemently. It's super weird. Yeah. But it's and, weird in a way that I like. Well, eventually we got to discuss that. We're going to talk that about that scene. right now. Yeah. Uh, the climax of this show comes a scene that um, you are either going to love or you hate. I loved it. It made me cry. Uh, I don't know how you guys felt about it, except for Toby, who sent me a text saying, this interpretive dance scene is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and I said, no, it's not. And he said, I, you mean I've seen a stupider thing than this? <laughs> <laughs> so Toby, go. Just go talk about how much you hated the interpretive dance. Go. You know, I guess I'd give him credit for like trying to do something a little bit different. Mm. But the interpretive dance scene 
is too literal. The people aren't really dancers, so it seems like kind of awkward. And the whole time I was just thinking, have you ever seen the movie Top Secret? Yes. Mm-hmm. With Val, With Val Kilmer. Kilmer? Yes. Do you know that dance scene? Is your daughter 16? Yes, I do. <laughs> the, the, the ballet scene? Yes. <laughs> so I was thinking that would make it better, uh, as if they all had enormous cod pieces. But the, uh, <laughs> like, if they were going to try something like that, I think they really needed to, to nail it. And I just kind of thought like all the little moves were just like a little too on the money. And it was just like, oh, okay. So the daughter's trying to get the parents back together. And Kenzo's not sure what he should do about, you know, it's just like, all right, I got it. You know, you're you're kind of bringing through all these things that we've kind of gotten before anyway. And you're trying to tie them up in a bow with this kind of, you know, lame interpretive dance. So I, I thought it was I couldn't believe what I was watching <laughs> and, and that they were going to sink this much like time, effort and money into this to the show to have that be the final like scene. And the thing that I think they want people to remember it for is this kind of climax did not work for me. Maybe it did for other people. I wanted to be in the writer's room when they were putting this together. All right, hear me out. <laughs> Here's how I want to finish this. <laughs> All like, right. You sound like Abbott. <laughs> <laughs> uh, instead of a shootout, how about instead we go to black and white and then we start, Kenzo and Yuto will start dancing. <laughs> but it'd be like. I hate you. I love you. I hate I you. I hate you. I love you. It'd be all his emotions wrapped up in one. <laughs> <laughs> it just went on and on and on. Yeah, uh, Paul, uh, I'm not feeling that, but uh, we'll give it a shot. Laura, I have a question for you. There is sort of an unresolved thread, and I'd love to know if you have any theories. We are led to believe throughout much of the series that Sarah is being harassed by her ex, Ian, who she had sent to prison, her uh, you know cop ex who was both cheating on her and was a dirty cop. The beginning of the series when we first meet her, and by the way, I just freaking love her as a character. I do. I just love her. Uh, yeah. We've seen that someone has put a giant black snake through her mailbox, which she then has to like chase out with a lighter. And it turns out it wasn't Ian. What do you think was going on? Who was harassing her? Who threw the brick through her window and who put that snake through her mail slot? First of all, I just like to say I never knew that you could get rid of a big terrifying snake with a lighter. So <laughs> I, I definitely... Yeah. Uh, I, snakes, I am absolutely like you learned terrified something. of snakes. And so I was like, I'm going to file that away. If a big snake <laughs> comes in my house, I'm going to have a lighter handy. Um, but, you know, yeah, that was because I was like, it was clear like in the end that the ex-boyfriend didn't quite seem to be as evil as you were led to believe. And I was like, hmm. Um, so I was like, okay, so is it either the woman, the other woman that he was sleeping with? Mm-hmm. Was it the big uh, police guy who doesn't like her, who was friends with her ex? Um, so I think it was like somebody in the police department who had a grudge against her for having put this guy away, but I don't think it was him. I thought it was Kenzo who put the snake in her mail slot. <laughs> no, it was not. That was a different snake. <laughs> different mail slot. Oh, dear. Oh, I- I'll my. say I actually thought that was a really great head fake because we were, I think, you know, our assumption was that he had been an abusive boyfriend. I mean, there was a lot of yeah. like sort of assumptions that the viewer, I think we just we leaped all these conclusions right. and then to sort of see the way that unfolds. And it's yeah, he's, you know, planting evidence, 
but really she's just pissed at him because he's sleeping with that other woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I thought that was a really great plot twist that sort of hints at Sarah not being perfect because, you know, she's sort of set up as a really perfect protagonist in the style of British cops, the way they very often are. And she's not. I mean, she has, I mean, she was not wrong to, like, turn her boyfriend in. She was mm-hmm. not. However, as he asks her, you know, you really mad that I did that, or are you just pissed at me for sleeping around? <laughs> and she's like, well, both. <laughs> I don't know. I thought that was pretty good. Um, can we talk about the the fingers, please? <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. Well, Laura, you don't. You're not familiar with the yakuza tradition of cutting off a pinky as a way to make up for uh, killing somebody's man. <laughs> can you imagine having to cut your finger off like that and then be like yeah it's fine i'm gonna wrap it up in this little napkin now and turn it in i'm like hand it to you yeah (laughs) yeah wow yeah my goodness what did you guys think of the curious because i thought it was just such a great another great twist what did you think of the plot twist at the end where we find out that the british cop who's sent there who all everyone thinks is just a loser was actually kind of a major figure who was you know Kind of a hidden spy who actually spoke Japanese and was kind of a plant. Toby, what did you think of that plot twist? Uh, yeah, it was good. <laughs> <laughs> Toby's like, why wasn't he in the dance number, though? <laughs> I, the sex tourist. He was again, it would have been better. Yeah, I, 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 my favorite character in the whole thing is the uh, the fat partner who's like yeah. always a little disheveled yeah. and has like funny things to say that Kenzo just like doesn't have time for or it's just... <laughs> I mean, he's basically pretty humorless anyway, but that dynamic I thought was pretty funny. I was surprised by Rodney. Yeah, me too. Because, you know, when you first see him, he's sort of like, I mean, we heard the clip, he's sort of- Over the top. Yeah, a little over the top. He's very extra. But they, they wrote him with a lot of depth, and it was acted very well. You know, so by the end, when we get to the final uh, scene, or his final scene, because mm. he's not with uh, the is folks he, at the he's shootout. He's not in the dance number. <laughs> yeah, he's up with his ma. Um, his alcoholic absent mom. Yeah, I felt, yeah. you know, I felt uh, a strange connection to him. Yeah. So, you know, that was um, that was a surprise. I loved Rodney. I really did. I, I thought that I thought that you know he doesn't have a redemptive arc like a, a more ham. I mean, this this is a very ham-fisted show, but like a a different kind of cheesier show that didn't write characters well would not have had him accidentally kill Ian <laughs> right before the end of the show. And you know he was still making like terrible mistakes, mm-hmm. even as you had come to kind of love him as a character. I thought that was it was it was a very interesting arc too. Right. All right, well, should we do what we do and let our listeners know whether or not they should check out Giri Haji on Netflix? I promise it's not like anything else you've seen before. It's certainly not like anything we've ever reviewed on this show before. Laura Bricker, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for this series on Netflix? Um, I'll give it a thumbs up. Um, It's not like my favorite thing I've ever watched, but um, I did enjoy it. It was definitely unique in that it had, you know, two cultures that we haven't seen combined in a crime show before. And that was very interesting. And bonus, I learned how to get a snake out of my house if one comes in. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, it was it was definitely it was different and it was interesting. And, you know, it moved along quickly. Some of it wasn't as believable as I could have been. But you know what? It was enjoyable. Tell you, Bob, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Giri Haji on Netflix. Yeah, I think I'm kind of in the Laura Bricker camp on this and that I'll give it a thumbs up, but it's not great, but it's it's entertaining, you know, and especially now if you've got eight hours that you're just <laughs> looking for something to watch, that's going to be kind of 
entertaining and you could get up and grab something to eat and come back and it's probably okay, I would say, you know, check it out. I mean, it's not boring. Kevin Flynn. Yeah, I'm a thumbs up. Um, I really did like this. I think it's a feat when an actor can be more compelling in his second language than many actors are in their first. Um, are you talking about our friend Kenzo? Kenzo. I'm sorry. I can't. Yuto. I love the way Sarah says it. And his the name. actor who plays Yuto. Yeah. Uh, I thought when we see him as a young man and kind of a fumbling juvenile kind of character to an assassin, I thought that that was done very well. I looked up the names because, you know, writers always like to screw around like with the, who they name people. And Kenzo is a Japanese name. Yuto also translates to hot water. <laughs> which he's always in hot water. Yeah. And the last name, Murray, is a Japanese surname, but in Latin it means death. Mm. So I thought that that was, you know, uh, I thought that was clever. Tip of the hat to the writers. What does it I mean? <laughs> uh, it's biblical, I know that. But Giri Haji doesn't feel like, you know, a British drama at all, but it, it seems like it's something completely on its own. It's artistic without being art house. Hmm. Wow. Uh, Kevin, I'm glad you liked it. I think more than Laura and Toby did. I loved this so much. And I I keep thinking about it. It's one of those things that I watch and I keep thinking about after I watched it. Like, I, I wish I could watch it again for the first time because it's like, was so cool to me. Mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons I liked it so much is that it uh, it starts as a very straight procedural. Dead person, what happened, lots of shootouts, what's going on next. Like it says, The setup feels familiar, but then over the course of the episodes, they drop in these small fantastical elements that they inc- then increase dropping in. So it's like, you know, by episode three or four, whatever, you have like some animation or whatever. And you're but I feel like you're primed for it. Mm-hmm. Um, at least I was. I love the characters so much. I just think it has a tremendous amount of heart. It's so weird and so different than anything else we've seen in so long. So I loved it. I think a lot more than even Kevin and the rest of my panelists. Huge thumbs up for me for Gary Haji. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Today's podcast is sponsored by June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game which transports you into a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance set in the glamorous 1920s. You'll play as June Parker as she embarks on a quest to solve her sister's murder. But that's not all. You'll let your imagination run wild as you get to customize your own luxurious estate island with expensive gardens and beautiful buildings. So, can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Moving on. Trending on Netflix right now is the re-release of the Paramount Network's miniseries Waco. A lot of shooting in this episode. (laughs) It features David Koresh as a thoughtful spiritual leader offering enlightenment to his followers who seek just to be left alone in the Texas wasteland. Joy doesn't come from having something. 
or being something, it comes from becoming. Becoming more than you are today. Meanwhile, we follow FBI hostage negotiator Gary Nosner, who fears the agency's new reliance on military tactics over peaceful resolutions is the wrong direction. My dad used to say, you don't earn trust by telling people how good you did. You earn it by saying the hard stuff. Now, our greatest asset as an agency is that people believe in us. But if we lose that trust, we might not ever get it back. After a deadly attempt to serve a warrant leads to an armed standoff, Gary tries to hold off an FBI raid of the compound while convincing the Branch Davidians to surrender. With negotiations going nowhere, Gary focuses on Koresh's number two, who has grown disillusioned with the movement. You need to know your people are in a lot more danger than you think. In my experience, the longer these situations go on, the more erratic people's behavior gets. And we're seeing that on our side, too. Largely sympathetic to Koresh and his followers, we're taken through the many events that led to the standoff's deadly conclusion. Now we are going to be talking about plot points for Waco, so to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes. Toby Ball, you know a lot more about sort of the history of cults in the United States and like these kinds of movements. One of the things that really struck me, and I was wondering what you thought about it, was how clean and neat the Koresh story in particular was in this film. What did you think of the way David Koresh himself, not the performance by Taylor Kish, which is which was fine, like completely fine, but what did you think of the writing of David Koresh as a character and the way it was handled in this film? Uh, well, he's super sanitized. I, I, I think there's no question about that. You know, just, just as kind of an example, in, you know, they're not required to give like a backstory, but, you know, the reality of how he became the leader of the Branch Davidians is nuts. Like the, the Branch Davidians, so it was the Seventh-day Adventists had a split and the Davidians were like a sect of the Seventh-day Adventists. And then the Davidians had a split. And so Branch Davidians is a split from the Davidians. And when he arrived on the scene, the the guy who was the head of the Branch Davidians had just died and his wife, who was in her late 60s, was sort of in charge. So Koresh shows up, and he's in his young, early 20s and has an affair with this woman. At the same time, marries a 14-year-old who's part of the group and so incenses the son of the, of the woman, who's, I think, older, <laughs> you know, who's probably 20 years older than David Koresh, who's sleeping with his mom. And married to a 14-year-old. Yeah, that they, he, there's like this battle for who's going to be in charge of the Branch Davidians. And the way that the son decides to, uh, to settle it is they're going to dig up a corpse and whichever one of them can bring it to life will lead the Branch Davidians. And so he gets the corpse and tries for a couple nights to bring it to life. And of course, you know, doesn't. And Koresh, instead of doing that, like tries to figure out how to bust this guy for like corpse abuse. So he calls the police and the police are like, "Uh, we're just going to take your word for it. Like, do you have any proof? So he and some of his buddies like dress up in camis with automatic weapons and storm the Branch Davidian compound and get into a gunfight with the other Branch Davidians. And he shoots the son doesn't kill him, but shoots him. <laughs> and that's how he wins the 
charge of the Branch Davidians. Like, that was it. So when it looks like, when they're kind of portraying him as this sort of, just leave us alone and I'm a man of peace. And, you know, it's like... Charismatic leader. It's like, yeah. no, dude, you're, you've shown yourself to be super violent and a pedophile. Mm. Like, right off the bat. That's not even talking about, like, the weapons and all this stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it's an obvious choice that they made to make him seem a lot more benign and sort of normal than in real life David Koresh was. Yeah, we're not talking about performances or writing or structure of the miniseries. I am still a little uncomfortable with how they minimize the role of the Branch Davidians and, like Toby says, sanitizing it. The characters keep saying, we didn't do anything. Or what did we do that was so bad? And they say it enough times that you start to believe, you start wondering, yeah, what was it? They just keep showing them praying and not wanting They're to do like stuff. They're just like a little weird religious and, act, yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of like this problem that you had with the devil next door, mm. which was about Ivan the Terrible mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the Nazi guard. It's like, okay, the premise is you are going to want the audience to root for this bad person. Mm. And so how do you do that? So, yeah, naturally you got to write and make him sympathetic and so that the dramatic tension is such that we know how it ends, but we got to care about them and so that we wish things would be different, yada, yada, yada. It's a guy who, I mean, we didn't do anything. You have a bunch of gas masks yeah. around, not because you want to pray. You have an arsenal you are, in your ice cream You freezer. are planning for this. Right, yeah. right. And you may not be offensive. Your plans may not be, I want to take these weapons and go into town. But you are definitely waiting for a confrontation to be defensive. Plus, you're anyway, also marrying 12 year olds and their yeah. sisters. Yeah, was, and they kind of. That was pretty creepy. I mean, that's. They kind of really gloss bad. over a lot of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they don't mind putting the cast down, uh, so to speak, on the government yeah. about, you know, those tensions. I found that to be interesting. Well, I, I don't think there's a lot. I mean, there is debate around it in some circles, but I mean, Toby, just to show you again, like. I'm not wrong that the government is widely believed to have mishandled this standoff, right? As they have been believed to have mishandled other standoffs where they either didn't do enough or they did too much or there were misread tactics or like arguments how it should be handled. I mean, that's that's, not in dispute. That's not in dispute that this was mishandled. Right, Toby? Right. I mean, I think think there was a misunderstanding about whether that gas would be flammable. You know, at the time there was a lot of pressure because the idea was that children were being abused – daily, right? So it's not just, you know, we're bored. This has taken a long time. I want to go home. We look like idiots. It's there are kids being sexually abused in there Mm. and we're just sitting here letting it happen. My memory is that Janet Reno was distraught that the gas they used was flammable and that they should have known that Mm. that was going to be a catastrophe. Yeah. But but that, that, that could be my faulty memory. But it also helped lay the groundwork for future standoffs and it, up to today the government not doing much at all right but the screenplay is really all the conspiracy theory stuff around this. yeah it really glosses over was the tear gas flammable mm-hmm. yes it is but they don't even go to into any of the you know the bit where there are people who left the compound who said i saw people carrying gas cans to set the fire, that there were, you know, there were V marks in three different parts of the. Hey, listen, that, there's just like that arson science. We know some of it's BS. Some so, of it's BS. So don't get I'm too, just don't saying, do it just, just, you know, you can believe it. Or, and I know. Look, we really have, as we've learned through these many years, no reason to believe the government. Yeah. When they say all this stuff, but I also find it hard to believe the Branch Davidians too. Yeah. Anyhow, 
Laura, you thought it was romanticized as well, right? Oh, yeah. I just thought it was like it was like the total like the WB uh, version of the Waco story. (laughs) I mean, right down to the fact that David Koresh is played from the guy who was in Friday Night Lights, Mm, um, which, you know, um, so I just felt like it kind of glossed over. I found myself as I was watching it like. You know, I'm thinking, you know, I would rather see a documentary where we actually hear from some of these people that were involved and the survivor who wrote the book that this was based on. And And those exist. Yeah, Yeah. there's a lot of, you know, and get a little bit more accurate representation because this was just like I was like, um, okay, so like you said, I mean, it's already been said, but just it it really came across fairly one sided. Well, actually, it came across. I thought two-sided and like it's interesting to me that the source material was two books both Negotiator's book and David Thibodeau's book and it totally shows because they're both like fine yes like especially Gary's <laughs> like I just I know something's not gonna go great here of course he's played by Michael Shannon who's a great actor who I love mm-hmm. and Thibodeau who's played by yet another Culkin brother a uh, lesser Culkin <laughs> oh don't say that he's just another Culkin yeah. uh, <laughs> he's no like Eli Manning, come on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, anyway, Eli Manning, who's two zero in the Super Bowl, is against the Patriots. The lesser Manning. Uh, anyway, he um, <laughs> <laughs> he's in the compound and he's reasonable. You know, he's the one try who's like a a good mentor to the young daughter and is trying to just love. You know, Julia Garner's character and it very clearly like the the two of them had some say in the script. Couldn't you feel that, Toby? Uh, yeah, it's 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 a little heavy handed. <laughs> <laughs> honestly yeah i mean it's it's an interesting thing to write or to influence a screenplay to make yourself like this sort of infallible hero for both of them yeah i mean they're both by far like the most compassionate normal you know forward-thinking people in their in their groups so yeah except for john leguizamo who then completely disappears yes and he had like one of the most interesting character arcs right kevin he did i mean this this was actually you know on paper a pretty solid cast i mm. mean you do have uh, oscar nominee michael shannon mm-hmm. the koresh guy what was that guy taylor kish, taylor kish? Yeah. he's okay this very breathless performance i didn't think he was so great uh julia garner julia garner ruth Julia Gardner from Ozark oh, and Supergirl, most of annoyed. The other ones had like one really good character building scene. I was 12 when David had his vision that he should take me as his second wife. And nobody knew what to do about it until your dream telling you that God demanded it. And, and just like that, I, I became his second wife. And just like that, I had serenity and and just like that, she might be taken away from me, all because of your dream. I mean, what about my dream? There's one really, also, I'd say one other really good performance, and that's Paul Sparks as Steve, yeah. the number two guy. Paul Sparks from, uh, we know him from... Um, uh, from House of Cards, yes. in Boardwalk Empire. Yes. He is sort of the emotional center of inside the compound. I wish that God would have chosen any other person on the earth to speak through instead of him. You know what? Despite everything you're saying, no one's explained to me what we did to deserve all this. You know, you had the power to end this too. How's that? You could just leave. Where we, he's believable and we feel for him and he's a good actor, but the character's written so weird too. I mean, the conflict. He's like, well, I think he's in are we supposed to situation. believe that he was really going to leave at that point? Like, there's a lot of weird, like you know, hemming and hawing stuff. That's like, I know that that's what happened. I mean, that's yeah. what Thibodeau's book says, and his other survivors say that he was, you know, starting to doubt Koresh at the end. 
but also to paint him as like an, another good guy. I mean, he knows what's going on. Like he's watching this guy bang a 12 year old. You know, it's not OK. Yeah. You know, it's like th- there's definitely some sort of some missing pieces here. Laura, I have a question for you. Uh, were you surprised to learn? Turns out it's true that David Koresh is an aspiring musician who did play covers in local bars and who did play music during the standoff. Were you surprised to hear that? I was. And I have to say that was probably the best scene out of this whole thing for me when like their power goes out and they're like, we got them now. And then all of a sudden it's like a rock concert. Um, Yeah, I was. That was that was an interesting part uh, to this whole thing. Um, The many the many talents of David Koresh that we didn't know. Yeah, I was I was surprised by that. And when they were in that bar playing My Sharona, I was 100 (laughs) percent sure they were going to change the lyrics. So was I. I was like, he's going to turn this into a Jesus song. Yeah. (laughs) Something like that. I just really thought it was going to be that. Didn't do that. He did not do that. There's a great documentary called Marjo, M-A-R-J-O-E, which is about this guy Marjo Gortner. And uh, he grew up like as like the youngest preacher in the United States and was on sort of that the uh, tent revival circuit Mm -hmm. and then kind of dropped out of sight and then comes back and goes back on the circuit. And it's just kind of following him as he goes around. And sort of the thing about it is he's a total charlatan. Like he doesn't believe it at all, but he knows how to do the act. Mm. And it's totally like a rock concert. Yeah. Like it's a hundred percent like he's doing Mick Jagger in front of all these tent revival, like older, uh, largely white Southern audiences. So there, there absolutely is this sort of same kind of thing that, that it's not surprising to me that a guy like David Koresh, those are his two outlets for that kind of his, like, I mean, he clearly was charismatic to, to have these people in his thrall, especially with the weird stuff he's talking about. Um, and those were kind of like his two outlets. Yeah. But who who did it better, Toby? Joe Exotic or David Koresh? <laughs> Who's a better musician? <laughs> it's tough. It's a tough call. I think we're out One there. actually knows how to play the guitar. Exactly. We all know now that Joe Exotic didn't actually write nor sing those songs. <laughs> you know, I kept thinking about Bundyville when we were watching this mm-hmm. and sort of the thread of, of the reporting there, you know, being Is that- Is there a connection? Of course there's a connection and that, uh, you know, that the government has really taken a hands off approach to intervention when it comes to these fringe groups and people who are heavily armed, who are, you know, using the veil of religion or political beliefs and basically putting the government in a position where they then have to say, do we want another Waco on our hands? Mm-hmm. Like that's this is that event. Right. Yeah. And it's just it's really interesting. And I, I'd say to our listeners, if you haven't listened to Bundyville and Bundyville season two, The Remnant, you really need to listen to those podcasts to get the kind of perspective I think that we were all maybe looking for a little bit more in here. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, I'm, I don't know. I, I look at like as I was watching this, I just was thinking about like, it, you know, we're all so isolated feeling right now. We're all like holed up in our homes or like in my neighborhood. It's like we've got three houses in the woods behind us. And like those are the people that you see. And I'm like. We could totally become a cult out here. Like pretty soon, we're living in this <laughs> insular little world. I mean, we might be already. I don't know. 
All right. Well, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Waco on Netflix? Yes, the series actually came out a couple of years ago on a small network, and now Netflix has re-released it. And I guess in the time of pandemic, anything becomes a hit because this is trending in the top 10. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Should people check out Waco on Netflix? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Uh, I'm going to say no. You know, I think there's there's better ways to, if you want to learn about Waco, learn about what actually happened than this show. Uh, you know, there's a few scenes that are interesting. We have a rock band scene at the end with David Koresh. That was kind of interesting. But I just, I really didn't love this. I felt like it really romanticized the story and kind of glossed over a lot of the important issues. So um, for me, I, you know, I really wasn't into it. And there's other things out there you can watch. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Waco? I, I'm a thumbs down too. I It pains me because I really like Michael Shannon. I don't think it's that good just to begin with. It, it's not, I didn't sort of enjoy watching it. And then I think it's kind of irresponsible with the way it frames what was happening. And it seems to, in some ways, support this idea that if there are laws that you don't feel like following, as long as you're heavily armed and aren't like aggressively going like off your property to hassle people, that you should be able to get away with it. And I think there are a fair number of people who believe that. A, I don't agree with that, but B, I don't think that's really the lesson of the Branch Davidian thing. And I think making it that kind of plays into almost a mythology of what happened there, which just isn't accurate. Kevin, what about you? I'm also a thumbs down. Uh, This is trending now. It got its premiere on the Paramount Network, which used to be Spike. So nobody saw it. Now people are seeing it now, (laughs) two years later. It doesn't feel like prestige television, which is what I think they were hoping this would be. It kind of suffers because uh, we are seeing a, a non-commercial version of a commercial miniseries. So it, all, it has all these hard breaks where the commercials would go that kind of stop the flow and then make every break a mini act that has to be resolved for that. So it doesn't flow the same way. It doesn't look the same. There's just There isn't a polish to it that you know a prestige thing on HBO would be, for example. And I am troubled by the depiction of the Branch Davidians and David Koresh. It just is like, you know, they were complicated for sure to only sort of paint them as victims and not really give the weight of their sins, which could have made them a more complicated and compelling and interesting bunch of characters to just make them off as like uh, they were harassed by the government. Just I don't think is responsible either. Yeah, I completely agree with everything that all of you said. Uh, I really want to echo Toby's points. This is actually, I think, a a miniseries that could do some harm. I think it could propagate some misconceptions about what rights mean and should mean in the United States. And I, I think it's troubling, you know, as we discussed in our conversations about Bundyville, how the government is reticent to crack down on any group, it seems, as long as you're heavily armed, operating under the veil of religion and white. And I think that this show does not do anything to help enlighten us in any way around those causes. And yeah, it's incredibly tragic that so many people died in Waco. And even I don't think all the real people who died were sort of honored or given um, their due in this. In some ways, weirdly, Randy Weaver's little act at the beginning is way more interesting than the whole rest of this thing. So I'm definitely going to give this a thumbs down. I would say do not watch Waco on Netflix. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. 
Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. Today's podcast is sponsored by June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game which transports you into a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance set in the glamorous 1920s. You'll play as June Parker as she embarks on a quest to solve her sister's murder. But that's not all. You'll let your imagination run wild as you get to customize your own luxurious estate island with expensive gardens and beautiful buildings. So, can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime of of the the week. It wasn't a drunk driver. Utah Highway Patrol pulled over this week, driving 35 miles per hour and weaving through the fast lane. Nope, it was a five-year-old boy. The officer said the little guy was sitting on the edge of the seat so he could reach the pedals. The boy had $3 in his pocket and a dream. He told the officer he got into a fight with his mom because she wouldn't let him get a Lamborghini. So he was heading to California to buy one. Give this boy credit. This junior achiever knew enough to start the engine and merge into the correct highway heading for the Golden State. He even knew to pull to the side of the road when the sirens came on behind him. It's unclear if authorities are going to charge the parents who left the boy alone with a sibling when they went out and clearly taught their five-year-old to drive at some (laughs) point. But panel, here is my question for you. Stay home, Utah. This is why. With so many people afraid to go outside, maybe the mom sent this little boy out on purpose. Mm. So my question for you is, what kind of errand would you have given your five-year-old the keys to the car in order to run? Lara Bricker, what do you think? Uh, Timmy fell down the well. No. Um, (laughs) Um, In my house, that would be if we ran out of coffee. It gets pretty ugly. Mm. So um, mm. coffee would send somebody out to the store. Toy Ball, what about you? What would compel you to let your five-year-old take a drive in your family car? Uh, we've got so much coffee here that that's not going to be an issue for us. Um, I, I would kill for a good piece of pizza right now. <laughs> I think he's saying he would kill a five-year-old by putting him in a car for a <laughs> to get piece the pizza. pizza right now. Taking it back, sure. What about you, Kevin? Well, uh, the errand would obviously be insurance fraud. Yep. And can you smash up the car? Because that's... That's exactly <laughs> what would happen immediately upon leaving the driveway. I mean, don't you guys want to know? Like, I want to know how that five-year-old was able to drive so well, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean- How that- can you reach the- <laughs> I, I mean- saw the photo. He's a little big boy. He's- yeah. Wasn't there a dog recently that did a similar kind of thing that was driving <laughs> yes. around and around in a circle? And you're like, how is yes, that uh, possible? Um- <laughs> All right, Laura. But he's Parker. actually on the, right, the correct highway. <laughs> It's not easy to you to get on the highway when learning to drive when you're 16. Maybe he just knew how to program the GPS. <laughs> All right, Laura Bricker. of Los Angeles. We're going to end it on that note, but before we do, do we have a cat of the week this week? Well, Rebecca, just for you, we have a dog. Nice. Um, sent in via email from Rich in Brighton, Sussex, UK. Hi, Rich. Hello, Rich. Rich has been listening to us since the very beginning. And, oh, Rich. Um, and then he tells us a little about himself. He lost his eyesight in 2011 due to a rare genetic condition. 
And it was during that time his sister put him onto Serial, and then he started listening to us. Um, nice. You know, and then after that, you know, he went through some difficult times, but was able to go back to university, um, completed his third year, and got a job. And, you know, coronavirus sucks, and things are not so great. He goes on about that, which, I mean, we can all agree, it's a very difficult time to be working from home, and it sounds like um, over there as well. But here is his dog of the week, Gus is on Instagram, and I will get the photo out there. He is dressed up as Prince for a fancy dress competition at Doggy Pride. He is a lovely little five-year-old Bedlington Terrier, and although he is a little confused as to why we are both home all day, he's used to social distancing, and so he is usually lying down in the other room away from us anyway. Um, So thank you so much, Rich. And um, it's fun to dress up our pets when we're all at home during coronavirus so if you have some pet costumes send them my way <laughs> and rich thank you so much for being such a loyal listener to the show we're thinking of you we hope you're doing okay in this time of coronavirus laura bricker if folks want to send their dogs in as submissions to be cat of the week and just take it all over with dogs how can they find you on twitter it's at laura bricker but i would like some cats too because you can never have enough cats and thank you yeah, to you everybody can. this week who told me about the live webcams where I can watch big cats at the zoo in Australia Ah. during the day. I've been watching the otter cam at the Kansas City Zoo, but someone else turned me on to the cat cam. Nice. Toy Ball folks want to reach out to you and ask you questions about UFOs and Barney and Betty Hill related to your hit amazing podcast, Strange Arrivals. How can they find you on Twitter? They can find me at Toby Ball NH. And Kevin Flynn, folks want to reach out to you and say, hey, Kevin, how can they find you on Twitter? Um, at... Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me both places at Reb Lavoie. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On, and I encourage you so strenuously to join the amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page. You can look for that too. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll get the Crime Writers On After Show, Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker Podcast. Our theme song was performed by the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble and used with permission. Our line editor is the very handsome and very smart Henry Lavoie. Our social media and newsletter maven is my favorite mama, Meredith Plunkett. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where we always do an interpretive dance based on everyone's reviews. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you later. Later. Offering enlightenment to his followers who seek just to be left alone in the Texas wasteland. Clip two. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.